Section 33 of The Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 10. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 10. Section 33. George William Curtis, 1824-1892. By Edward Carey. George William Curtis was born in Providence, Rhode Island, February 24, 1824, of a New England family, his ancestry on the father's side running back in unbroken line to the Massachusetts settlers of the first half of the seventeenth century. Though his home was in New York from early boyhood, he was through life a type, one of the best, of New England manhood. The firm, elastic, sometimes hard fiber of a steadfast and intense moral sense was always found, occasion requiring, beneath the social grace and charm, and the blithe and vivid fancy of the author. His schooling was brief, a few years only before the age of eleven. The rest of his education, which was varied and in some lines thorough, was gained by reading, with private tutors, with his accomplished and gifted stepmother, and, richest of all, alone. In 1842, while yet a lad of eighteen, he went for a couple of years as a boarder to Brook Farm. There, to quote his own words, were the ripest scholars, men and women, of the most aesthetic culture and accomplishment. Young farmers, seamstresses, mechanics, preachers, the industrious, the lazy, the conceited, the sentimental but they associated in such a spirit and under such conditions that, with some extravagance, the best of everybody appeared. Compared with other efforts upon which time and money and industry are lavished, measured by Colorado and Nevada speculations, by California gold washings, by oil boring and the stock exchange, Brook Farm was certainly a very reasonable and practical enterprise, worthy of the hope and aid of generous men and women. The friendships that were formed there were enduring. The devotion to noble endeavor, the sympathy with what is most useful to men, the kind patience and constant charity that were fostered there, have been no more lost than the grain dropped upon the field. These two years, and one spent on a farm at Concord, Massachusetts, near the homes of Emerson, Hawthorne, Thoreau, were followed by four years in Europe, in Germany, Italy, France, Egypt. And in 1851, at the age of 27, Curtis took up seriously the work of a writer. Within a year, he published two small volumes, the Nile Notes of a Hawaji, and the Hawaji in Syria. For a couple of years he was a writer on the New York Tribune, where his Brook Farm friends Ripley and Dana were engaged, and Lotus Eating was made up of letters to that paper from the then famous watering places. 
he dropped newspaper work to become an editor and writer with putnam's magazine and the potiphar papers and prue and i were written for that periodical for a time he formed a connection with the printer of putnam's in a publishing business in which and through the fault of others he failed assuming quite beyond the requirements of the law debts which it took a score of years to discharge finally he found his publishing home with the house of harper and brothers at first a contributor to the magazine and the weekly he became the editor of the weekly and the writer of the easy chair and from those two coins of vantage until his death on august thirty first eighteen ninety two he did what apart from his lectures and addresses was the work of his life he made no more books save the one not successful novel of trump's written as a serial for the weekly and the volumes from the addresses and the easy chair published after his death yet he fulfilled the prophecy of hawthorne on the appearance of the nile notes i see that you are forever an author it would not be easy were it worth while exactly to classify curtis and if in general phrase we say that he was an essayist that only betrays how comprehensive a label is needed to cover his work essays long or short the greater number of his writings were each practically embraced a single subject and of this presented one phase important perhaps and grave or light amusing tender and sometimes satiric to the verge of bitterness though never beyond it the hawaji books which first gave him a name and fairly launched him as a writer were a singular and original product wholly different from what could have been expected of his training and associations a venture in a field which curiously enough since the venture was in every sense more than ordinarily successful he promptly and forever abandoned i aimed he says in one of his private letters to represent the essentially sensuous luxurious languid and sense satisfied spirit of eastern life the style was adapted with courage not to say audacity to the aim no american at that time had ever written english so riotously beyond the accepted conventions so frankly almost saucily limited only by what the writer chose to say of what he felt or fancied under the inspiration of the east lee hunt compared the nile notes to eothen and to hyperion but the relation was extravagantly remote the hawaji books were as individual as the lavish and brilliant bloom of a plant in the hot rays of the southern spring and as passing once the shining and slightly gaudy flowers were shed the normal growth proceeded to substantial fruitage the potiphar papers were like the eastern books in this that they were at the time a still more successful venture in a field which if not wholly abandoned by curtis was not continuously cultivated but was only entered occasionally and never quite in the same spirit 
they were a series of satires fanciful enough in conception but serious and almost savage in spirit on the most conspicuous society of the day its vulgarity vanity shallowness and stupidity the qualities inherent in the prevalent rivalry and money-spending they were of marked importance at the time because they were the brilliant and stinging comment of a gentleman and a patriot on a portion of society whose wealth gave dangerous prominence to the false standards set up and followed happily the vices curtis scourged were those of an over-vigorous and unchastened youth of society and the chief value of the satire now is as a picture of the past prue and i was a series of papers written as curtis's letters show in odd moments and with great rapidity to meet the exigencies of the magazine but the papers survive as an example of the pure literary work of the author the opulence and extravagance of the hawaji books disappear but the rich imagination the sportive fancy the warm and life-giving sentiment the broad philosophy are expressed in a style of singular beauty flexibility and strength and it was in this line that the easy chair essays were continued forming one of the most remarkable bodies of literary product of the time they were written for harper's magazine four or five monthly equivalent each year to an ordinary duodecimo volume and the series closed with the death of the writer some thirty-five years from their beginning their variety was very great some of them touch the events and questions of the time and the time embraced the political contest with slavery the civil war and the marvelously rapid and complex development of the nation after the war but when the events or questions of the day were touched it was at once lightly and broadly to illuminate and fix some suggestion of philosophy through all ran the current of wise and gracious and noble thought or sentiment many of the essays were woven of reminiscence and comment on persons in the little volume selected by himself and published shortly before his death a dozen of the twenty-seven were of this nature embracing such varying personalities as edward everett browning wendell phillips dickens thoreau jenny lind emerson joseph jefferson whoever was thus brought under the clear soft penetrating light of curtis's pen lived thereafter in the mind of the reader with a character more real and just in many of the essays of the easy chair there was a tone of gentle satire but always hopeful and helpful not bitter or discouraging as if in titbottom spectacles that broke the heart of the wearer with their revelation of the evil in those who passed before them new lenses had been set revealing the everlasting beauty and power of the ideal which evil violates and to whose gracious and blessing sway the writer with a kindly smile at the incongruities of the actual invited his friend the reader
The very title had a gleam of this subtle humor, it being well known to the profession, and established by the experience of successive generations, that in reality there was no such thing as an editor's easy chair. Even if we allow for the fact that Curtis's seat was in his tranquil library on Staten Island, remote from the complications and vexations of the magazine's office, we must still recognize that the ease was not in the chair, but in that firm high poise of the writer's spirit, which enabled him, with wisdom as unfailing as his gracious cheer, to report and consider all matters of what kind soever. Curtis was, perhaps, in his lifetime, even more widely known as a speaker than as a writer. At the very outset of his career, he became one of the half-dozen lecturers under the curious and potent Lyceum system, that in the third quarter of the century did so much to arouse and satisfy a deep interest in things of the mind in the widely scattered communities of the American Republic. At the very outset, too, he entered with all his soul into the political agitation against slavery, and became one of the most stirring and most highly regarded popular orators of the Republican Party. Later, he was eagerly sought, upon occasions of historical interest and for memorial addresses, Still later, he delivered the remarkable series of addresses on the reform of the civil service in what was in effect a second struggle for political emancipation, waged with as broad a human purpose, with as high courage as was the struggle against slavery, and with even a riper knowledge of the conditions of safety for the republic. The great body of these addresses, many of the slightest, as well as the more elaborate, were essentially literary. Most of them were written out and committed to memory, and many were marked by more of the polish and completeness of the scholar's conscientious and deliberate work than most of the writing intended only for publication. But they were still the orator's work, addressed to the ear, though fitted to bear the test of study, and intended through the ear to touch the conscience and the heart and sway the will. Apart from the unfailing and lofty moral purpose that pervades them, their lasting charm lies in their music. They were the emelia, the well-tuned speech of the Greeks. But the hidden monitor, who kept the orator true to the carefully chosen pitch, was not the freedman of Gracchus. It was the sensitive and faithful artistic sense of the speaker. A writer lives in the world's literature necessarily by those of his writings that find a permanent form in books. Of these Curtis left few, but fairly to judge of his influence on the thought, and so on the life as well as the literature of his country, we must remember that the unusual gifts and the rare spirit revealed in these few books pervaded also his work in the magazine and the journal, that the fruit of his work would fill a hundred volumes, and that it reached readers by the hundred thousand. Had Curtis sought only the fame of the writer, 
he could hardly have failed to gain it, and in notable measure. In pursuing the object he did, he might rightly believe at the close of his career, it is doubtful if he ever gave it a thought, that he had rendered to American literature a service unrecognized and untraceable, but singularly, perhaps uniquely, great. End of section 33